Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I never remembered that scene before, and this time it's the one scene that I took note of. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? I got my popcorn, I got my jujubes, I got my slushy. You are ready to watch a movie! I am! I'm ready for movie club! <laughs> awesome. We are starting off our movie club today with our brand new contributor, film buff Fran, and we watched uh, the movie Chariots of Fire, which is about the some of the athletics competitions in the 1924 Paris Olympic Games. But before we get to our movie club discussion, we wanted to take one moment to let you know that this week's show is sponsored by RR Auctions. RR Auctions, as you know, is a globally recognized and trusted source for Olympic memorabilia and other collectible categories. Their January Olympic auction starts today, Thursday, January 9th. You have until you have until the 16th to bid on some amazing, rare, and remarkable lots, including the 1984 LA gold medal for Greco-Roman wrestling, a 1988 Calgary gold medal for the biathlon 4x7.5-kilometer relay, a medal from Rio 2016, which might be one of the first medals from that Olympics that's been up for auction. They've got torches from several Olympics. They've got lanterns that hold the Olympic flame. They've got medals for things that aren't even in the Olympics anymore. And a sweater, which today it's cold and I would love to be wearing it. And if anybody, you know, any of our listeners just want to give us a really nice thank you gift... That sweater would look lovely on me. I know. It would. It would. It probably fits you perfectly. Perfectly. And I'm sure any collector who hears that goes, no, don't, <laughs> don't put it on. Don't put it on. Do you think that every once in a while, somebody who's got a torch in their collection, you know, like. Uh, just lights it. Like Dr. Michael. Yeah. Or just like holds it and runs around a little while. Oh, yeah. It's not just us. <laughs> So go over to rrauction.com and register to bid for diplomas, posters, badges, tickets. They've got some really cool tickets and ticket art is impressive. And get to bidding and be sure to tell them when you register that you heard about RR Auction from our podcast. That would really help us out. Good luck in your bidding. And if you if you win anything, let us know what you've got. Or send it to us. <laughs> We're not picky. We'll take anything than that auction. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> All right, let's get on to our movie conversation. As we said, film Buffran is here to chat about Chariots of Fire with us. Chariots of Fire is a 1981 Best Picture Oscar winner, and it also won the BAFTA Award for Best Picture. And it is considered to be one of the classics when you talk about Olympic movies. Take a listen. 
We're here with our first movie club discussion, and we welcome back Fran Johnson. Happy Olympic year, Fran. Yes, happy Olympic year to you, too. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to 1924. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, that was an Olympic year, too. Fran is here to talk about our first movie, Chariots of Fire. Fran, take it away. Well, Chariots of Fire was a movie that was made in 1981 about the main thrust of the movie is the story of two athletes. They were both on the Great Britain team and they were both track and field runners. And basically it just kind of details the story of, you know, how these two different men from different backgrounds overcame whatever odds they had to uh, succeed um, at the 1924 Olympic Games. And it was it was a very compelling story. Um, the two characters that they chronicled were really, I thought, very interesting. Uh, one was a man called Harold Abrahams, and he was a Cambridge-educated uh, lawyer, uh, became a lawyer. And, you know, he was known for being very fast and he was very driven. He was very, he was very arrogant as well, but he really had this like overwhelming desire to succeed in, in particular uh, at the Olympics. And the alternative uh, character is Eric Little, um, and he was from Scotland, and he was another amazing athlete of the day. I believe he was a rugby player before he did a lot of running as far as his Olympics competitions. He was born actually in China to a family that were missionaries. And when he was back in Great Britain, he was kind of, you know, thrown into the mix with the Olympics just because of his prowess uh, at being such an amazing athlete. And the, the really crisis of the movie comes when, you know, due to his faith um, and his missionary work, Eric... Um, was slated to be in the competition for the 100 meters. And the preliminary races that wore that uh, were slated to do become on a Sunday. And because according to his faith, you know, the Sunday is their Sabbath day. So it's their day for God. He refused to run. And that really was a crisis because, you know, you, you have on the one side, you know, this man's religious faith, his religious beliefs. And then on the other side, you have his duty as a sportsman for his country, especially as a man that they thought would, was going to win it all, to participate and to compete and to excel. And so, this is one of those points that is slightly different than reality. Correct. So one of the things we talked about ahead of time was how accurate in this is Chariots of Fire to the history. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that he wouldn't race on Sunday was true. Correct. But in the movie, they make it sound like he found out on his way to the Olympics. So it becomes this very dramatic. Correct. Yeah. It was crash like a of events. In it, like, what? What do you mean I got to participate on a Sunday? I can't do that. Where in reality, he knew months before the games. Right. And the he British knows. team sort of rejiggered their team based on that. So the idea that Lord Lindsay comes in and says, oh, I've won my medal. Let Eric run in the 400. And it seems like, oh, yeah, he just goes and wins a gold medal in a race he's never trained. Right. right. Yeah, that was right. the, one of the things I thought that was pretty odd in that going from a 100 or 200 to the 400 mm -hmm. distance is a big deal. And even drag change. Yep. Yeah. And even back then, I would think it'd be difficult to do that many races if you haven't trained. Most right. Likely. So, yeah. yeah. But the one thing that was very accurate was in the movie, they have the Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, who became famous mm -hmm. for abdicating pressuring mm -hmm. uh, little to and that was true yeah he actually did get but in reality he had eight months of pressure mm -hmm. oh wow so that whole lead up mm -hmm. he was getting pressure from the prince of wales from the head of the british olympic association to mm -hmm. change his mind about running the race because the british olympic association wanted great britain to go one two because mm -hmm. mm. they assumed either eric or Harold Abrahams, who, mm -hmm. spoiler alert in the movie, wins the gold medal, <laughs> they would basically go one-two against the Americans, Charlie mm -hmm. Paddock and Jackson Schultz, who had gone one-two in 1920 in Antwerp and were both coming back. Mm -hmm. So they condensed 
the time in the movie, but the essence of that was true. And I actually think right. for the movie, doing it in that few day stretch worked very well. Because how would you dramatize an eight month journey of basically people kept showing up at his door and pressuring him and, you know, let's do, let's condense it to basically it happens on the ship ride from England to Paris. Yeah, I agree. I think it was, it was a good way to still have the drama and the angst of, you know, what is this man going to do? And then, you know, just, and keep moving the story along. Right. Did you like Harold and Eric? You know what? They were both flawed characters. Yeah, I agree. I gotta say, Harold was such a, he was kind of a flawed character because I loved his drive and his desire to succeed. And he, he even hired his own private coach to try to get him across that finish line. But, you know, they really put across how he was very arrogant about his skill set. And he had this kind of, you know, if I'm not first, I'm nothing kind of personality. And they kind of tried to feed that drama with that side story about him and his eventual wife, Sybil, you know, and how crushed he was when, you know, he actually did race against Eric Little and failed miserably prior to the Olympics. So his character was very interesting. I think that Ben Cross did a very good job of portraying his character. And as far as Eric Little, I think Ian Charleston did a very good job of portraying this kind of holier-than-thou, very kind of perfect person. I don't think he thought he was a perfect person, but to those around him, they thought, you know, he was a very pious, a very, a very driven person in his faith. And, you know, he wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a loud mouth. He wasn't a boy. You know, he, he didn't he didn't have that arrogance that Harold had. So he could have come off very flat on screen. But I think he gave him a really kind of quiet strength. And I, I really think that he did a really good job. What do you guys yeah, think? I, I agree. I liked I, I thought the way both actors portrayed the characters and the way both characters were written was mm -hmm. very complex. Mm -hmm, and even mm -hmm. some of the lesser characters like Aubrey Montague mm -hmm. and Andrew Lindsay, they were not stereotypes, even no, not, though yeah. they didn't have a lot of screen time. And speaking of Lord Lindsay, I don't know if you had this reaction, Jill. There's a scene where he is training the hurdles. Oh, with the champagne. Put, with the champagne. The... And I yes. immediately was like, Don Harper Nelson, you, you got to go training <laughs> with champagne glasses on your hurdles. This but the hurdles like, are different today. I mean, those are I wide hurdles. <laughs> those were wide hurdles. But I was just thinking of her and saying, I wonder if she's ever tried this. I bet that would be a lot more fun. <laughs> fun than... fact that never happened, but that's okay. That was oh. another movie, you know, fiction. But it was kind of cool that he, <laughs> that he trained with the champagne glasses. Correct. Oh, yeah. I never assumed that that was actually I thought that was totally yeah. for the movie. Kind of cool. But I was it, like, is, it is cool. <laughs> he was my favorite character, though, Lord Lindsay. He was very good. And I want to say in my research, correct me if I'm wrong, was he the character that they kind of made up? Right. So he's based on a man named Lord Burley, mm -hmm. who did, in fact, run the hurdles. You know, they they changed the name. They changed the name and they slightly changed the circumstances mm -hmm. uh, because Lord Burley did not give permission to use his name which he later regretted. Well, when the movie did so well. Exactly. <laughs> which was a shame. But I really liked the two men. But it was interesting how, you know, when I was doing my research, you know, is this movie, you know, truly a good representation or is it just something that, you know, they're, they're doing things just to, you know, advance the movie on screen. One of the interesting things I found was that faith aspect, you know, Harold being of Jewish faith, Little being of Christian faith, you know, that was a big key component of the movie. And in reality with Harold, he competed in the 1920 games in Antwerp, and he did not do very well. And really, in my research, he was really driven by his desire to win. You know, that was really why he went to 1924 to Paris, because he wanted that medal. 
you know, and it was kind of interesting how they kind of downplayed. They didn't even mention that he was in a prior Olympics in the movie. And in researching it, I also found out that his brother had competed in 1912 in the Olympics. So, you know, he had that backstory of having come from a family of winners and, and excellers, you know, and I think that kind of fueled a lot of his desire, you know, not so much the whole faith aspect. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is interesting because the movie does jump around in time a fair amount and they go back to like 1921. So mm -hmm. it was interesting to, it's it interesting to hear that. It starts in uh, 1919. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Cause I, I do remember 1921, but if they go back to 1919, why didn't they even mention this aspect rather than kind of introduce Harold as a young genius who can run this Cambridge Dash and, hey, mm -hmm. we think you can go to the Olympics kind of person. Which he never did. Right, oh, and that's fiction. I know, I was disappointed too. <laughs> Lord Burley slash Lord Lindsay was the first to complete that oh, dash. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Harold never even attempted it. But here's how I look at this, because we've talked about with some of the books and some of the other things how everyone hates wa watching historical movies with me because I yell at the screen for things being inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> but in this movie, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. No, it works. Strange, it totally works. Because I think they got the essence of the story, the fact that Eric Little was driven to honor God with his racing. Mm -hmm. And Harold Abrahams was driven by something, you know, for not, uh, personal glory is beyond that. Mm. But personal glory and the fact that he felt very put upon mm -hmm, was historically mm -hmm. accurate. So I feel like they got the essence of it if they did dramatize some of the details. Like, for example, another thing that was not accurate was his friendship with Aubrey Montague. They were not in college together. Mm -hmm. Aubrey was actually an Oxford man. Mm -hmm. Later oh. in life, they became best friends. Oh, that's really interesting from the Olympics moving forward, because they both remained very involved in British athletics. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we got the essence of the fact that Montague and Abrahams were best friends, but the circumstances that they portrayed in the movie were slightly different. Yeah, you wouldn't want to introduce that best friend character so late in the movie. So he needs somebody to right. like play off of and reveal himself to. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about a scene that I wrote down. I only wrote down three notes when I was <laughs> rewatching it. So there was very specific things. So there is a scene right before the 100 final at the Olympics where they're in the dressing room and they're all getting ready to race. Yeah. And it's the first time that that scene struck me. And I think it's because of the interviews we've done. The tension and the feeling in that room was so well done. It reminded me of when we spoke to Charlie White and he told the story of right before he was about to skate for the gold medal. He was thinking to himself, what happens if I just walk out of the arena? What happens if I just leave and don't skate? The pressure, and, and I thought that scene was so brilliantly conveyed that feeling of, I have worked for this my entire life. This is about to happen. And every single one of them was overwhelmed, terrified, and there's no dialogue in that scene except mm. the voiceover of Harold reading the letter with mm -hmm. charm. Mm -hmm. I never remembered that scene before. And this time it's the one scene that I took note of. Yeah, that was very powerful. Definitely. And it's funny because, you know, as we all know, with Harold, spoiler alert, winning the 100 meter, you know, he's elated. But then he goes into almost kind of like a depression because the question now is, well, now what? You know, I've been working for this for so long, and I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of Olympians kind of feel that way. You know, you, you train and you work, and this is the goal. And, you know, regardless of how you do or if you do, you know, reach the ultimate and you win that gold medal, you know, then what? You know, what does it all mean after that? So, yeah, I think just both the before and the after were very poignant because I think it does address that feeling probably of many Olympians as they go through their, their story. Did it strike you, Jill? It did. This was, your I mean, this was your first time through, so you didn't have the yeah. comparison point. Mm. Right, right. But it was very interesting. I think what I took more from that scene was the fact that his coach just couldn't watch, said, I can't mm -hmm. be in the stadium with you. And I thought that was really very interesting how that worked. And uh, listener Don had mentioned in our Facebook group that this wasn't Musabini's first rodeo. 
I mean, he'd coached Olympians before. So it was so interesting to me that he couldn't be in the stadium and he couldn't watch. Mm -hmm. I always took it as he couldn't be there. Like when we talked to Marty McBean, how a lot of your personal staff can't be there because you Mm -hmm. don't get accreditations. So I didn't take it that it was nerves that he couldn't be there. I took it that he couldn't be there because he wasn't allowed to be there. Because remember, the heads of the BOA would not have wanted the professional Mm -hmm. coach there. Right. Oh, I didn't even think it that way. I really didn't. That was so interesting. I think it's a little bit of both because I think the movie kind of portrays him as being kind of on edge, you know, as he's in that room across from the stadium that Harold supposedly picked out because he could be close enough but unfortunately not there, but feel the action. I, you know, he, you saw him pacing and kind of, you know, really, I think there was that conflict. I think it showed this kind of really great relationship between the two men and the fact that, you know, even though he couldn't be there on the field, he was definitely there connected to him as he was racing. But I do agree with you, Allison. I, I think it wouldn't have looked right, you know, or maybe it wasn't even impossible for him as a quote unquote, private coach or staff member or whoever you want to classify him to be in the stadium, you know, with the team. I don't know. Do you want to know of that scene, the most heartbreaking historical inaccuracy? Go ahead. They didn't get their medals. There Uh, was no medal ceremony at the 1924. Yes, I was listening to an interview uh, with Harold Abrams that he recorded in the late 60s, so many years later. And he said at 1924, they did not have any medal ceremonies, that there was no raising of the flag, no... Mm. uh, His medal was mailed to him several weeks later. Wow. But but again, this goes back to what I was saying, truth versus facts. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we got the truth of the moment, right. even though the facts were inaccurate. Right. So another um, historical inaccuracy about the races was actually the events calendar was a little bit off. Yeah. In the movie, Harold does not do well in the 200-meter race. He actually ended up in sixth place, and the Americans really dominated that race. So, you know, there was also this angst of, you know, oh, my gosh, Harold is once again falling short of his expectations, and then he races the 100-meter and then comes out ahead, whereas in reality, he had competed in the 100 meter, won the gold medal before he competed in the 200. So, I mean, I'm assuming they just took that artistic license just to increase the dramatic effect of him finally hitting that mountaintop and and winning that medal. Speaking of inaccuracies, one thing I was really curious about was the fact that there was product placement in the stadium because that really took my attention away. I noticed the Lipton T banner every time they showed it. And I didn't know if that was something that the producers had in there because they were using it as a money earning strategy or if that was really what happened in the Olympics. Well, I did a little searching and it was historically accurate that Pernod, Oval Maltine, as it was called, and Lipton Tea did have advertising in the Olympic Stadium in 1924. And your, your your sources? It's a book called The Sports Film by Bruce Babington. Which is interesting because now, putting on the list, when did the IOC get very insistent about no advertising in the stadium or anywhere around Olympic properties? Right. I get the impression from having read the section of Bruce Babington book that refers to 1924, in the movie, it may be a little bigger than it actually was. Like that Lipton T, Lipton's T, right? Because it had the apostrophe S, which is right, why right. I kept looking at it, was pretty prominent. I get the impression it may have been not quite as big, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to something in the movie that I wanted to ask you both was how do you feel like the movie's aged? Obviously, it was talking about 1924, but it was made in 1981. Well, and the interesting thing is they mentioned that in the color commentary because they said they started the movie at the actual funeral services for Harold Abrahams because they wanted to kind of get almost like a contemporary feel for it. Not that the movie happened so long ago that you really couldn't, you know, really connect to these characters. So they started it as a funeral. And in the pews of the church, you see the older versions of some of the characters. And then it harkens back to his first 
entry into Cambridge um, in 1919. And then the movie ends, once again, it fades at the end to, back to the funeral to kind of bring it back to present day, which was their way of trying to say, hey, look, you know, yeah, we're in 1981 making this film about 1924, but it's not like such an old separate entity. I got to say, watching it for the first time, I didn't think it was dated. I think it holds up to the test of time, and it's a really well-done movie. Where it does kind of get weird for me is the soundtrack, actually. Yes! It's this iconic soundtrack, but, like, you're talking about, like, you got the do-do-do-do-do-do, and and then the synthesizer comes in, and, like, it's (laughs) 1924, and there's no synthesizers, Vangelis. Come on! The only two things that I thought made it feel very 1981 was the soundtrack. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially the Harold's Disappointed music. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That really struck me as of its time. And the romance story. Yeah. I thought was very... And that's the only part of the historical inaccuracy that bothered me and I think didn't work. First of all, his romance with Sybil is wrong on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Harold was not involved with Sybil Gordon, who was an opera star. Mm-hmm. He was involved with a different woman named Sybil, who was kind of a background singer. Oh, okay. Correct. I read that. Wow. Yep. And the romance didn't happen until 1934. Mm-hmm. And it felt like I don't know if they would make the same choice now, but movies of that era, you had to have a romance. You right. had to you have had a to have female story. love interest. Or mm-hmm. females wouldn't like it. Exactly. Right. Like you had to have a love story or girls wouldn't come to your movie. And it felt very stuck in. Right. And it was an inordinate amount of time spent on this relationship to mm-hmm. me that took away from other elements of the story because I was wanting more about the characters, more about the running, more about the Olympics in that time. But we got a lot of Sybil. And maybe she, (laughs) well, she wasn't there to encourage Harold in the first place. So that made it more difficult because you then you force this kind of construct of, oh, it's because of her, he's got the gumption to go off and do it. That was very forced in just a lot of time. And it also made Harold look like more of a jerk because he knew his buddy had a crush on something like, let's just make up more stuff. Oh, here's a relationship. We'll put a right smack of a dab in the middle of this story instead. And then we'll make up this rivalry that you have with your best friend and you steal the girl he's got a crush on because he's too shy to like ask her out. Unfortunately, you know, if they were making it today, I would hope that they wouldn't feel like they needed to put that part in. But I mean, you're probably right, Allison, you know, back in the 80s. I mean, who didn't love a good romance as part of the story, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but I don't know. I I didn't really feel like there was a lot of clicking between the characters. It was very, it, it felt very flat, you know, even when they were together, you know, did you really get a sense of this enamored? I mean, maybe on his side, but her, I mean, she was kind of very one sided, I felt. There was way more chemistry between Harold and Sam. I don't mean in a romantic sense. I mean in a character sense. Right. Just when those two actors were on screen, you felt that connection. Father-son connection. Mm -hmm. You felt that coach-pushing-an-athlete connection. And then you've got this very, I think flat is the perfect word, romance. The other thing that struck me about the romance, which I never noticed before, Every time the two actors kiss, she's wearing these ridiculous hats. <laughs> so they hold their heads in these very awkward positions. And I'm thinking to myself, that looks like the most unromantic kiss ever. So we just didn't want to kiss him. Yeah. I was kind of like, <laughs> did Ben Cross have bad breath? What is going on here? He's a very handsome man. Why are you upset about kissing him? So, yeah, that was the only part of the story that I felt, oh, we're back in 1981. Everything else, I felt like this could be a movie that we made now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would love. Okay, so that's the thing. I do want to say I did still love the movie, and I was so relieved. Aww. And then I was so relieved. And then when I was done, my immediate thought when I rewatched it was, I hope Jill and Fran really liked the movie. Like somehow I had been involved in making it. 
<laughs> like it felt very personal. So to to all the listeners who go and I hope you loved it because it's, <laughs> it's like somehow I felt like, oh, this movie is so special to me still, which I'm so relieved about. And now I hope everybody else loved it as much. It it was a very strange feeling. But interesting that the movie inspired that in me. Mm-hmm. There's there's something about this movie. I think that makes you very affectionate towards it. It's a gentle film. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody dies in the movie. Nobody, it, the rivalry is there, but it's not angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, think- very, the camaraderie amongst the team. And, and even the idea that Lord Lindsay would be, oh, you know, he could go and do my event. I've already won my medal. That, right. that to me was like, oh, that's really, really nice of you to do that for your teammate. One thing I was surprised, though, that, and, and I know they repeated the iconic scene of everyone running in the beach. It was the beginning titles and the end titles. But I was surprised that there were no, like, team workouts in the middle. Because well, I we thought that was going to be a reference to something that happened. But like so they kn- did show that workout of the American team. Right. Which was very bizarre. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was very bizarre. And again, a scene I did not remember. And I'm like, are we trying to show the Americans and sort of ape-like? <laughs> I think so. I think, had, I think they probably felt that they had to include some kind of, you know, training montage for the movie. And, you know, the Americans you know, what better way to showcase this kind of threat to right. Harold and Eric by showing them really putting themselves through their paces and, you know, getting ready. Although the calisthenics they use, I mean, I would definitely have to research it, but they, it was just odd, you know. In right. Terms well, of- you know, yeah, stuff back in the, the day, I think, was it the evolution of how we stretch and warm up and everything you do now is so different. So that was kind mm-hmm. of interesting. But I think it was really like trying to establish that national rivalry that in a sense came on a little bit late for me in the story like there's a lot of like oh let's get on the team and oh let me woo and romance my lady and then you get there and you're like the americans wait what there was there was a story against the americans too oh okay i feel like there was a scene that was cut from the movie that explained why charlie paddock was so mad about losing Mm. because during the Olympic scenes, they showed Charlie Paddock a lot Mm -hmm. and his reactions to the Brits winning. Mm -hmm. And it didn't feel like it made a lot of sense. I feel like maybe in the original script, there was a conversation between Harold and Charlie. So I, I believe that they brought on Dennis Christopher because I think they needed an American star to kind of pump it up for the American Mm. audiences. And Dennis Christopher had already rose to some fame, especially with Breaking Away, prior to it. So, you know, to have that familiar face on the screen, I mean, they might have just plainly had to give him some screen time, you know, to appease that American audience that they were trying, they were, you know, seeking the approval of. That makes um, sense for why we kept seeing him. Because I'm like, why are we seeing him? There's no. They made mention of it in the scene between Sam and Harold when they're watching the film, saying you have to beat Jackson Schultz, you have to beat Charlie Paddock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that was certainly not an impetus to push him through because he kept saying, oh, but first, Eric Little. Mm-hmm. And another weird thing was the guy from New Zealand. Remember when oh, the yeah, Prince of Wales I loved that bit. had that little conversation with that guy? And he was, I want to say he was from New Zealand. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at the results from the the Olympics, I mean, it wasn't even the same name. So, I mean, I guess, I don't know if that person decided not to participate or, you know, how that came about, but it wasn't the same name. Oh, that's and, interesting. Because he was yeah. uh, this gentleman who showed up in this room of elites and was just like oh i'm here from new zealand that sounds like fun i think i'll participate like it was just (laughs) something you could sign up to do day of you know well again i think that goes i keep saying this but i think it goes back to kind of truth versus facts Mm -hmm. that when you're talking about sort of oh he happened you know here's this new zealand upper class somewhat athletic young man who happened to be in paris so let's send him to the olympics could have happened to kind oh. of give you that idea of the mm. of what it was like in 1924 in the Olympics, like that was that clubby atmosphere. 
What I really, maybe they just had a handy New Zealand actor, so that's why they made him maybe. from New Zealand. Um, but I, I, what I thought was kind of interesting and they didn't really go into was in the beginning when they showed Eric participating in those like little track duels between, mm -hmm. you know, Scotland and what was it, France, France, they had one, and then they had another one. So that was kind of interesting because that was more the feeling of his background, like what he did maybe mentally and physically to prepare, or, you know, did he like competing in those races? So it was kind of nice to see that kind of backstory and how, you know, he was very revered, it seemed like, in those circles. So that was kind of an interesting part in the beginning. I mean, you know, does the movie hold up? I don't know. It's a good question because the thing that kind of stuck in my mind is that whole central argument. Would someone today, you know, make that decision not to do the thing they were training to do because of their faith? And unfortunately, I think in the United States, in terms of religious devotion, I don't know how devout, coming from the United States, people today would agree with Eric's decision. Because like the Prince of Wales says, you know, come on, dude, give me a break. You know, you're, you're part of our team. This is for your country. Put your faith aside for, you know, just this one day. You know, what's the big deal? And I think back then, you know, it definitely meant more you know, than it does now, at least I think I feel in the United States. Well, I think that we may not hear those stories anymore. And people just don't sign up for stuff if that's going to be on a day that they don't want to participate. See, Fran, I had the exact opposite take, which is funny, because I think in so many ways in the United States, that public displays of religion in certain circles has become a litmus test. And I think in 1920s, Great Britain, Religion was not as public. It's a kind of that stiff upper lip. Things should have been more quiet and gentlemanly. And I think the fact that he took that stand would act, was actually less accepted then than it would be accepted now by the public. Hmm. I think if you went to those very evangelical corners of the United States. And I don't want to say corners. There are huge swaths, Bible belts. And somebody said, I'm not going to compete on Sunday because of my faith. I think they would get an outpouring of support. Mm, whereas, I whereas in 1920s Britain, I think this idea that this man was making a public spectacle of his faith was very frowned upon. Mm. And it was all, remember, we're only five years out from the end of World War One. Mm -hmm. King and country, it. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this added little twist, he's Scottish. And mm -hmm. they didn't hit on it very heavy in the movie, but I'm wondering if the fact that he's Scottish, he's got to prove his loyalty to the king. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because he's seen as a little bit other. Mm -hmm. Every All of the central characters in the movie, Sam Musabini, Harold Abrams, Eric Little, are a little bit other, and yet they rise to the highest pinnacle, wow. mm -hmm. which I love. Mm -hmm. I do still love this movie, don't I? <laughs> and <there's> a... <laughs> so if you ask, you know, whatever happened to those, you know, main characters in Chariots of Fire, sadly, Ian Charlson, who plays Eric Little, is deceased. Um, yes. He died of AIDS in, at the age of 40. Oh, wow. So like, oh. like his character, he died very young because Eric yeah. Little died in the end of World War II and occupied, he went back to China. Right. And he died of, I believe, tuberculosis. But Eric Little does have daughters oh. who uh, survived. And in 2012, and we'll have to include a link to this in the show notes, there is a documentary that was created in the run-up to the Lundell Olympics with my imaginary boyfriend, uh, Nigel <laughs> Havers, <laughs> tracing the real chariots of fire. Oh, nice. interesting. And in that, he interviews one of Eric Little's daughters. Oh, nice. cool. And it's very, very emotional because Nigel Hapers goes and he says to her, I feel like I know your dad. Mm. And she said the movie, because she was a very, very young child and had almost no contact with her father because his family was sent away from China mm -hmm. to keep them safe. So she has almost no memories of her father. And she talks about how the movie gave her father back to her. And I'm going to start crying. Nice. <laughs> um, 
It's interesting how Eric Little, after the Olympics, it was uh, it was said in some of my research that he really, you know, he just went back to his missionary work. He pretty much he didn't capitalize on his stardom. You know, I don't know how Harold Abrahams did afterwards. I mean, he was an accomplished lawyer, uh, Harold, and he was a radio broadcaster. And he, like you said, he got involved in the British um, Sports Association. So he was very, he kept up with that whole genre that he was in. Whereas I think that Little, you know, he pretty much said, okay, well, I did it. I did what I needed to do. This was part of my devotion to God. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to go back, you know, to my main focus. You know, I'm going to go back to China you know, and, and do what I, I'm called to do. So that was kind of interesting as well. You know, and, and Ben Cross, he is, you know, still an accomplished actor. I mean, it, both him and Ian Charlson were both Royal Shakespearean actors from the Royal Shakespeare Company, and they've performed in multi- so many things. So it, it was nice to see. But, you know, it would have been nice to see Ben Cross in some other more, you know, headlining roles. He kind of, I think he did more theater and more kind of, character actor roles after that, not really that main lead. And we were talking before that Ken, the, the director and actor Kenneth Branagh has a cameo. He's one of the students during the, the initial dash mm-hmm. uh, in the crowd. I love that scene when, they, when they're doing that dash. That was exciting. I thought that was a fun scene to do. Very college boys. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, Fran, this has been a fun movie, a good way to start the club, I think. Thank you very much. What is our next movie going to be? So our next movie will be Miracle, which is the wonderful uh, story about the 1980 men's hockey team that won gold for the United States. They call them the Miracle on Ice. And it has Kurt Russell as the famous coach. And this is a movie that I really, really um, enjoyed watching in the past. So it'd be nice to kind of review it and see what I think at this point. So this will be a reverse for Jill and me because I have never seen this movie. Oh, I love it. Oh, love I, it, love you know, it, I don't it. think I've love seen it. it all. All right. So the reason we've chose Miracle is because this year is the 40th anniversary of the 1980 Lake Placid Games. So we'd like to tie into that a little bit. And the Miracle on Ice game actually took place on February 22nd, 1980. So this will be our show for February 20th. So be sure to watch the movie before then. And we'll be asking in our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast, for your reactions. I'm excited. And it's Kurt, he's Kurt Russell. It's Kurt. Who doesn't love Kurt Russell? Come on. He wears some <laughs> lovely 1980s costume, like pants. I, I believe his plaid pants are really Oh, period. yeah, because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that that coach wore. Yeah, Herb Brooks. Pants. Those yes, her brooks, her brooks, her brooks yep. are, wore those pants too. All righty. Well, Fran, thank you so much. And we look forward to talking with you again. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Fran. I honestly was impressed at how good the movie was. I'm so happy. I'm still happy. <laughs> so we recorded a few weeks ago. And in between the time we recorded and today, I watched it again and it made me happy again. <laughs> I don't know what it is about this movie. So if I'm ever having, like, if I ever go into a coma or something, just like bring this movie into my hospital room and I bet it would wake me up. All right. Duly noted. You know, Uh, because that happens so often. (laughs) Well, just in case. I mean, you should have it on your advanced directive, right? Resuscitate with help of Chariots of Fire. You know, especially if I do end up going to Milan and I go to one of those skiing things. Remember we saw that ski? Okay, so there was a video that came across my desk this week of a ski race, a downhill race, where a guy walks onto the course in front of the racer. What? Yes. And the racer doesn't swerve to avoid him because, you know, he's trying to win. Uh-huh. And the guy sort of has to jump out of the way i mean he misses him by inches whoa and then the racer proceeds with the most wonderful stream of invectives in whatever language (laughs) that was it was fantastic so the point of this is that in that scenario that would be me wandering onto the course Mm -hmm. i will get run over okay by michaela schifrin Mm mm-hmm I will end up in the Italian hospital and then just roll in the video and it'll wake me up and save my life.
you got it. Some research we did afterwards to clear up some of the facts, because we had questions on a whole bunch of facts and we couldn't really find them. One was about the advertising that was in the Olympic Stadium during that Olympics. And Paris 1924 was the first and only time advertising was allowed in the Olympic Stadium. That is according to the IOC's Olympic Marketing Fact File from 2019. They have a nice little history of how the marketing has evolved throughout the Olympic history. Now I want to know, like, why was it allowed and what made it go away? Can you imagine those conversations? Well, we'll research it. The allowed makes more sense. Why it went away so quickly is the more interesting story. Right. So, and we will also have a link to the documentary that was created in the run-up to the London 2012 Olympics that was tracing the real chariots of fire. It's pretty awesome. And uh, if you want more, listener Don and his lovely wife are doing a blog where they watch all of the Olympic movies in the Criterion Collection, so all of the official Olympic films, and they are working on the 1924 ones right now. So... Check out Excellent. Blog at com, and we will put that in the show notes as well. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. This is the segment where we catch up with our previous guests who are members of Team Olympic Fever. And this segment is sponsored by PinCollector.com. It's the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors. And it makes it really easy to catalog and value and show off your collection to people from around the world. The catalog is enormous. They've got over 26,000 pins right now. It's updated in real time, so you always have the most current information. It also allows you to buy, sell, and trade pins at rates that are lower than other online platforms. I'm putting some more stuff up there right now. And I finally did go into that Facebook group and say, hey, my Tokyo 2020 pins are on pincollector.com. So very nice. hopefully we'll get some more members from that because it really is a great way to know what you have and easily see what you have. And if you've got stuff that you want to trade, I just think it's probably the easiest way to do so rather than going th- I just baffles my mind that there's a Facebook group for Tokyo pin collectors. It just doesn't make sense because it's just like a whole stream of pins when if you want to buy or trade or sell. Pincollector.com exists for a reason. That's right. So check it out. It is free to join and can see what I've got as well. Thanks to our partnership with Pin Collector, we have our very own Olympic Fever pin. So if you become a Patreon patron or make a one-time $20 PayPal donation, you can get your very own. Visit olimfever.com slash support hyphen the hyphen show for more details. I have a pin that my daughter saw today. Mm-hmm. She said, Mom, can I have a pin? I said, I'll take $20 for <laughs> Patreon support. There you go. And, and honestly, our Patreon patrons and our donors are so very special and very important to us. This is going to be a very expensive year for the show. Not only is an Olympics involved, but we are already got two to three trips on the books before the Olympics and some equipment that has to get purchased and uh, some outside help to hire to make some stuff happen during the Olympics. So we really appreciate how much you support the show. And if you can throw a few bucks our way, we would really appreciate it. And trust me, we're not buying watches and steaks. <laughs> That's, that is very true. <laughs> this is, it, it all really does get plowed back in. We aren't even buying ground chuck that's been reduced for sale. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting the surplus cheese and crackers from that's right. <laughs> the army here. All right. First off, for our Team Olympic Fever, some kind of frightening news from Kim Rohde, who found a lump in her left breast. So she is having tests done this week, and they will look into it more. So that just signifies the importance of doing regular self-exams, women and men, too, because men can get breast cancer as well. So hopefully this is nothing, but uh, we will keep you updated and are, you know, sending some good energy out to Kim. Absolutely. Claire Egan will have a busy January. She is uh, competing in Oberhof, Germany this weekend, Rupolding, Germany next weekend, and Pokluka, Slovakia on January 23rd through 26th for the biathlon. She is the highest ranked U.S. woman in the World Cup circuit. She is ranked 56th. 
Hopefully she'll have a good January. One of our bobsledders, Lauren Gibbs, was nominated with Kelly Humphreys for Team USA's Best of December team. They didn't win, sadly, but very nice that they got recognized because they've been killing it. I know. That's a good new partnership this year. Oh, yeah, man. Speaking of bobsled, Nick Cunningham's tearing up the North American Cup circuit. So he won another two-man race in Lake Placid with brakeman Lynch Dakota. And in the four-man, they've had a bunch of races. So the first two, he placed second in each of them. And the four-man with Adrian Adams, Dakota Lynch, and Chris Avery. And they've got another race coming up before the end of the week. It's that Chris Kringle beard he's sporting now. Makes him faster. (laughs) Keeps his face warm and makes him faster. Finally, the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant will be in Virginia this weekend for the 40th Virginia Duels wrestling tournament and he will be manning the uh, social media account as one of his duties so if you are following virginia duels on twitter you know you know which tones are on the other end of those key strokes does he type with dulcet tones as well Ah, that's a good question (laughs) jason you will have to tell us moving on to our tokyo 2020 update Tokyo Organizing Committee has released the 20 official art posters. Did you see them? I did see them, and Mm -hmm. I did post them, uh, the link on our Facebook account, Uh and I'll be posting some of them on Insta. Mm -hmm. And I probably had nightmares about some of them last night. (laughs) I mean, I know the art posters, it's a wonderful tradition, and I love bringing in the different disciplines beyond sport. Mm -hmm. But there is this one painting of like a cat person. Yeah, that's creepy. That is terrifying. And, and I don't understand what it has to do with the Olympics. I don't understand what it has to do with Tokyo. It is a ter- is Tokyo filled with terrifying cat people? You'll have to let me know. I I will keep an eye out. It's interesting cuz that one also kind of baffled me. A, it's a little scary. B, what does it have to do with the Olympics? They've got 12 posters for the Olympics and eight posters for the Paralympics. And they run the gamut because they did get, they did commission 20 different artists. So you've got some really interesting artwork here with uh, a lot, some of the use of the Tokyo logo and there's some rings and there's a kind of an interesting, very simple one of the Tokyo stadium that I really like and some really cool ones on the, the Paralympic side. We will post links to that in the show notes as well. And if you've got opinions, let us know. And if you understand the Japanese cat people, tell us that too. Our Team Olympic Fever travel expert, Ken Hanscom, said that worldwide sales for the tickets and ticket resale site will open April 15th. And the Paralympic one will open on May 17th. So it's 100 days before the start of each event. So that way, if you need to resell tickets, those sites will be available. The Japan Times reports that asbestos was found on some pillars in the water polo venue. These pillars were not accessible to the public, and they noted that asbestos has not been found in the pool itself, but I'm sure they are looking into it. And there's been a lot of headlines, asbestos in the pool, asbestos in the pool, which is not accurate. Right. Well, you know, you got to have something that gets clicks. Asbestos in the pool. Right. Maybe there's also Zika in the water. Oh, God. (laughs) And the water's going to be really hot. (laughs) The Japan Times also had a review of the new stadium. The article talks mostly about sight lines and seats and other complaints that people have about the stadium. So in the higher tiers, there's kind of narrow spacing between rows. And the length of the rows is pretty long. So if you're in the middle of a row you could really have a hard time getting out. And then this I thought was... Especially if there are Americans sitting there because right? we'll just, you know... Well, you know, and... American, if, if, the, if their rows are tied together, Americans are going to have to wedge themselves into there. I'm guessing. I thought this was interesting. Part of the article also talks about like a fan section in the lower bowl of the stadium and it's split in two by one of the marathon gates. That is no longer going to be used. Oh, no. Yeah. So. They forgot the... to cancel the flowers for the wedding. <laughs> well, and they could, there was nothing that they could do about right. it. I'm sure at that point, because 
it was everything was almost done and and how can you take out a gate and put in put the seats back in that was supposed to be there so this is more for other events that will be there like soccer games or rugby matches that this fan section is going to be kind of split up and if you have a big fan section you know they all like to stand together and cheer and sing but this makes it a little bit more difficult to make that happen stairwells and tunnels to the upper stands are also pretty tight and kind of claustrophobic that's not great bathroom lines can be very long but i guess the number of facilities available is a lot more than used to be in the old stadium so that's a good thing and then one of the things they said you know not to they put the, they put all the bad stuff first in this article but they did say like being in the stands made it feel like you were in a coliseum and huh. and, and if you're in the upper levels you have great sight lines so that's really good does that mean we're going to see the Christians being thrown to the lions? I hope not. Is that is that a new event we're heading for? Haven't heard. <laughs> hope not. Free Wi-Fi is in there. Worked smoothly, so that was good. That that's going to be nice. So we will we will see how it goes when they when they actually had the Olympics in there and start using them for uh, the opening ceremonies and for the other events. So hopefully it's going to work out okay. And the test of it, this. They ha- they've had a couple of matches there so that it's a test event, and now they can hopefully do something to make some improvements. What? Don't know, but we'll see. You know what's going on this week, Jill? No, what? The Lausanne Youth Olympic Games. Oh, you don't say. had no idea. Yeah. Do you care? Not really. Me neither. And finally, we had a great email from listener Pete. And so we thought we'd read it on the air because he had a question for us. He goes, why are countries only allowed two swimmers in each individual event? But in athletics, countries are allowed three, giving the possibility of a full sweep. Well, Pete, there are only so many athletes allowed at the Olympics. First off, that is in the Olympic charter. Currently, they like I think it's a strong recommendation that they stick to 10,500 athletes per Summer Olympics. Although Rio had 10,901 and Tokyo is planning on having 10,616. So they're a little above that Olympic charter. But they're, they try to stick to that number to not let it get too out of hand. The quotas vary from sport to sport because it's dictated by the international federations. So you've got this Olympics thing, but the IOC doesn't really run any of the events. They're managed by the international federations. So they have to determine the rules within the Olympic charter quotas. So back in 2017, FINA, which is the International Federation for Aquatics, they actually had a announcement that they were going to drop their quota by 22 athletes. So in Rio, they had 900 swimmers. And in Tokyo, there's only going to be 878. And they cut that um, in half between genders. So they'll have 439 swimmers each for men and women. So basically, FINA has said up to two people per country. And World Athletics has said, hey, we're going to have three people per country for each event. So this goes back to a discussion we had months ago about the whole structure of the IOC, the national governing bodies, and the sports federations in relation, I think we were talking in relation to advertising, but just how they all interact with one another. And that in this situation, FINA can say, we want only two swimmers and World Athletics can say, you can have three athletes from your country because the IOC doesn't have a rule that overrides either of those things. Right. They look at that overall 10,500 athletes and they look at the number of events in their categories and they kind of break it down from there so and and each federation has a very different number of countries that's participating right like i would expect world uh, athletics and fina have a very large number of countries participating mm-hmm. where say speed skating or w- water polo has many fewer countries participating exactly. so that's also going to affect your country allocation exactly so pete i hope that answers your question and thank you so much for writing in. We love hearing from you. So be sure to, if, if you've got a question or just want to say hi, 
hit us up at olimfever at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter and Insta at olimfever. And we are on Facebook at Olympic Fever Podcast or join our Facebook group, which is having a lot of fun. We're talking about the suspect a little bit and we're seeing pictures of Centennial Park. So that's Olympic Fever Podcast in the groups section. And the suspect is our book club book, and we're going to have our discussion in a couple of weeks. So I hope you're reading because it's an, an excellent book. All right, that'll do it for this week. Next week, we are hitting the beach, and we are going to talk with American beach volleyball player Kelly Clace, which is really exciting. She taught us a lot about the sport, and she's a lot of fun. So we can't wait to bring that interview to you. Uh, Tune in. I'll be wearing a bikini. That says you, not me. But it's audio, so we're all safe. That's that's right. (laughs) All right, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Yeah, that was very powerful. Definitely.